Welcome back to my channel. I want to continue today to talk about the question, does Acts support the trilemma? That is the trilemma for the disciples. So we're talking about the idea that the disciples uh, either were lying or they were um, genuinely mistaken or they were correct in telling the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And then we argue from the context of their testimony that they were not lying. And that's where the book of Acts is very relevant. It's also relevant to the content, but the Gospels are even perhaps more relevant to the content of their testimony. It gives the accounts of Jesus' resurrection at more length. Um, now, the reason that the context is so important to arguing that they didn't lie was because they took a great risk. They risked and endured persecution. They risked death for what they were telling, for their testimony, their witness to Jesus' resurrection. And we can argue from the book of Acts that this was at least a group of 12 people. I believe there were more, but at least a group of 12 people, and we even know their names, who were out there risking their lives. So last week I talked about Acts 1 and 2. Today, I'm going to talk about Acts 3 and 4. I'm responding in this series to the claim that even if you took Acts at face value, you could not support that thesis. That's the skeptical claim. You couldn't support that thesis that these 12 named individuals were taking a serious risk of death and also of other kinds of persecution short of death for their testimony. Okay, so I'm not going to be defending the reliability of Acts here, but I'm going to be saying, okay, let's take up that challenge. If we took Acts at face value, what could we defend? Now, um, chapter 3 of the book of Acts is mostly taken up with a sermon, another sermon by Peter that's kicked off um, by an account of a miracle. In the account... Peter and John are together. They're going into the temple and there's a well-known beggar there who can't walk. He's crippled and they heal him. And then everybody's excited because this is a big deal and a lot of people come and Peter gives another public sermon. Another very rousing, very provocative public sermon. A public sermon almost uh, guaranteed to anger the religious leaders because once again, Peter is, you know, emphasizing that Jesus was murdered, that Jesus was innocent, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that they had him killed wrongly and unjustly. Okay, very, um, very offensive sermon. And that's, that's the majority of the, of the content of chapter three. Now, at the beginning of chapter four, it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail. Okay, now I'm not going to contest the claim that in this particular instance, it was only Peter and John put in jail. I'd say that's plausible. They were um, the ones directly involved in 
interacting with this lame man. And then Peter gave this sermon. And it's while Peter's speaking that the guards come and they arrest them. Okay, notice that it specifically says that proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead is what's offending them. And that makes sense because Peter's making it very clear that Jesus' resurrection was his vindication. And that that's what makes it clear that, you know, even if you think it's right to kill people for blasphemy, which would have been a, a shared view, um, Jesus wasn't a blasphemer. God vindicated him. You know, oops, we we killed someone who really was sent from God. How do we know? Because of the resurrection and that that's why repentance is called for. So they're upset about that preaching. So I'm not going to contest that in this particular chapter, it's Peter and John who are arrested. But what I am going to contest is that that means that um, from this point onward, none of the other named apostles are risking their lives or even more that the, the, they're actually stopping preaching. I mean, the, the evidence is all contrary to that. And that's what I'm going to argue today, that the, the evidence of chapter four runs strongly contrary to any implication that uh, you know, everything's sort of narrowing down and of the original named group, it's just Peter and John with, you know, some unknown other people who are leaders as if um, it looks like, you know, the other 10 members of the 12 just kind of slunk away. It doesn't look like that at all. Um, so they order Peter and John not to, not to preach, not to keep preaching about Jesus. And Peter and John just defy them in verses uh, 19 and 20, they say, it's, it's kind of a, a great terminology, a uh, great phrasing, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. A little bit of sarcasm there. You, know? you tell me, should I listen to you or should I listen to God? Um, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Again, that emphasis on the empirical testimony that the disciples are giving. It couldn't be stronger. So in passing, that's a refutation of anyone who tries to say that, um, you know, the message here was not a strongly empirical message. They were definitely being what we might call evidentialists. They're basing this on uh, their testimony to what they have seen and heard. And uh, in First John, John emphasizes that too. Okay, so they're making it clear, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep preaching. Um, it says that when they had threatened them further, they let them go. So they're like, well, if you do that, you're going to be in big trouble. Okay, they're threatening them. Now, at that time, it, it says they don't punish them, and they're a little nervous um, about punishing them because everybody's all excited about this miracle. But this is a pattern we've seen before in the life of Jesus. By no means does this mean that the Christians and especially the leaders and those who are out there publicly proclaiming are not in credible danger. To the contrary, we find this exact same pattern in the life of Jesus where they'll say, oh, you know, the people are on his side. We're afraid and uh, to take him. We're afraid of the people and, and he's doing miracles or the people think he's doing miracles you know they think of him as good 
what are we going to do? So what do they do? They, they go and they capture Jesus at night, right? Secretly. And then they, they drag him off and then they drag him off to Pilate, demand that Pilate kill him. So they find a way around it. It's a very volatile situation. It's not a stable situation. It's not like Peter and John can walk away and go back to the people and say, you know, it's going to be okay. They didn't punish us. So they're never going to punish us. Very much to the contrary. And the people know that. And when they come back and they tell the other Christians that, um, they, you know, they tell them what's been said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. This is verse 24. Okay. And they talk about the, uh, the Psalm where it says, why do the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things and so forth. And they talk about the threats, you know, so whoever's leading this, this prayer is alluding to the Psalms and the people who are um, who are defiant of God. And then verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. Okay? Um, so, again, the people are united with the leaders of the Christian movement in what we might call that spirit of holy defiance, that they're going to keep on preaching. Uh, they're going to do just exactly what they've just been told not to do. Not only is there no evidence of any of the 12 apostatizing here, there's evidence to the contrary. There's evidence of a, a union in these committed believers in their determination to keep on doing what they've been told not to do. Okay, and even more explicitly, 4.33. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Okay, so this is, it's not just Peter and John. Okay, this is clearly talking about that core leadership group. They're out there giving witness with great power. Witness is a very important word in Acts. We saw before that Peter specifically says they need to elect a 12th person to be a witness with them to Jesus' resurrection. That is because Judas died, they need to replace him so they have 12 who are witnesses. This is definitely picking up that theme again. Okay, who are the apostles who are giving witness with great power? Acts has already told us. Acts has already been very, very explicit in listing their names in chapter 1, in Peter's introduction to the election of Matthias in chapter 1, in saying in chapter 2 that Peter stood up with the 11. So the 12 of them are standing up there and being witnesses just like Jesus foretold, just as they aimed to do. And then in uh, 2.37, the audience says to Peter and the apostles, what should we do? So they recognize this group as the ones who are, who are giving this message. This continues it again. Um, as I mentioned before, the skeptic YouTuber Apologia has said, I've got an exact quote here, even if I take it at face value, we have the original 11 preaching up until the first time they were told to stop. That's all Acts is evidence for. 
After that, it's just the Peter and John show, unquote. I don't know where he's getting that from. Okay, I, I mean, I seriously don't know. Yes, it was Peter and John who were arrested in this chapter. We'll see more arrested in the next chapter. But to say that that's all Acts is evidence for, and to imply that the others, you know, were only preaching up until the first time they were told to stop, what? And then they stopped preaching after that? To the contrary, after that first time that Peter and John have been warned, and I mean, obviously that warning is meant to extend to anyone else. Nobody's going to say, well, they only warned Peter and John. I guess if Bartholomew gets up there in the temple and starts uh, preaching this, uh, this same thing, nobody's going to be mad at him. Of course not. You know, they're, just, they're like, shut up, you guys. Okay. Um, but then even after that, it says, with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Okay. So nobody is backing down at this point. Not only do we not see anybody backing down, but we see this, nope, we're not going to back down spirit throughout this early nucleus, this Christian community, and this group of leaders who are the apostles. The, the only thing that we don't have is a list again of their names. But it would be ridiculous to say that the author has to list their names every time he mentions this leadership group or else we have no idea whom he's talking about. All right, I mean, even, even the phrase argument from silence is hardly strong enough to describe how bad such an argument would be. So I have, I have no idea where apology is getting this claim that all acts is evidence for is that the uh, original group is preaching up until the first time they were talking told to stop and after that it's just the Peter and John show um, if the evidence is supposed to be that we don't have a list every a list of names like you know I listed the 12 now I'm going to list the 12 again now I'm going to list 12 again etc each and every time that would be obviously a terrible argument the burden of proof at this point with all of these references to the steadfastness of the Christians and the steadfastness of the apostles and their defiance of the order not to preach, even with the warnings and the threats, um, the burden of proof is solidly on anyone who says that some of the 12 shut up, fell away, stopped taking the risk, and were replaced by some totally unknown people whose experiences we have no idea about. Where's that coming from? That's just completely imaginary. And the, the burden of proof is on that person because there's so much strong evidence that that is not what happened. Um, and there is one more item of evidence that I want to talk about here from chapter four. I'm going to set this up a little bit by referring to um, Acts 14 verses four and 14. You can look those up. I'm not going to take the time to read them. These are proof texts that are sometimes used for the claim that the term apostles can refer to a wider group, which it can. In Acts 4, oh, sorry, Acts 14, verses 4 and 14, the author, the narrator, refers to Paul and Barnabas as apostles. Now, Barnabas was definitely not one of the twelve. Um, and we don't have any specific evidence that he even claimed to have seen Jesus after his resurrection. 
Paul is known as an apostle and felt kind of uh, touchy about it too. Uh, his seeing of Jesus after his resurrection was of a different kind from the 12. He saw Jesus only um, on the road to Damascus when Jesus didn't wasn't like right in front of him sitting down and tangible and having a meal with him. But it's pretty standard to call Paul an apostle, but Barnabas is also called an apostle in those verses in Acts 14, because the word can mean one sent, one who is sent. That's what it comes from. And that's clearly the sense in which uh, the author's using it there. So there's, you know, this proof text. See, apostles can mean the broader group. So you have no idea when it says apostles. Well, yeah, actually, you know, you use the context and you do have an idea. And the context here in these early chapters of Acts has been extremely explicit about this core group that's leading them and even giving their names and so forth. And I, I think that uh, we therefore should definitely take it that chapter 4, verses, verse 33 is referring at least to that core group of 12, maybe some additional people, but at least to that core group. But we can go even a little farther, even just in chapter 4. It's talking about this system they had where they were sharing their goods. I think this was temporary, but with the persecution in the wind, probably various people, you know, like now, are losing their jobs or losing their um, networks of friends and so forth. And so they're sharing and they're selling their property in many cases and bringing it to the apostles to be distributed uh, for people's needs and the needs of, of um, believers who are in, in want, in need. All right, verse 38, and Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Those are the last two verses of Acts 4, 36 and 37. So this is the same guy. This is definitely the same guy who many chapters later, about 10 chapters later, is referred to in this broader, looser sense as a sense one or an apostle. But here... In this early chapter, he is definitely distinguished from the apostles, okay? He was he was friends with the group being called apostles here to the point that um, they had a nickname for him. Apparently, his name was Joseph, but Barnabas meant the son of encouragement. He was an encouraging guy, and so that was his nickname. It says he was called that by the apostles, okay? And it says he sold this land and brought the proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles. So here, the word apostles is being used in a more restrictive sense, in that narrower sense referring to that core group of rulers, just as the earlier chapters indicate, those verses that I talked about last time, just as we would conclude from those, it's still being used that way here. So that Barnabas, who is later referred to as a sent one or an apostle, is here being distinguished from that group that was so prominent in this earliest period of the, the church, of the church's history. And prominent, why? As witnesses of the resurrection. I owe that point to my correspondent who actually inspired me to um, 
do this series because I wrote in reply to him. And once he got involved in the discussion, he actually drew my attention to that at the end of chapter four here. I had not noticed it. So again, you know who you are if you see this video. Thank you for noting that point. That's very important. Next time, we will be talking about chapters five and six and more evidence for the involvement of this named group of 12 individuals who were witnesses to the resurrection, risking their lives, accepting persecution as their lot because they could not stop telling what they had seen and heard, just as Peter and John say in chapter four. So I hope you'll come back to the Lydia Milgard channel where we're making common sense rigorous.